This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 78 and Matthew chapter 4. Psalm 78 verse 11 says, They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan, that was a city in Egypt. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. There is a reason why throughout Scripture, beginning in the book of Genesis and concluding in the book of Revelation, there is a reason why Satan is depicted as a snake. What is a snake, after all? But a mobile digestive tract, swallowing its prey whole. And so therefore, Satan is but pure appetite. Satan is nothing but pure consumption. And there's no doubt that in our culture, we live in a culture of consumption. That's fairly obvious, isn't it? We live in a culture that celebrates consumption, a a culture that says you are what you consume, you are what you buy, you are what you own, you are what you drive, you are uh, what you wear. Who you are is how you look. This culture of consumption. The verses that we read this morning from both the Psalms and Matthew's Gospel. Our scripture is about consumption. We're looking at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and this morning I want us to consider the very first temptation that Jesus faced there in the desert. Because it has to do with this theme of consumption where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness to turn stones into bread. Now, what's wrong with bread? 
I mean, well, in and of itself, what is it about? Maybe this temptation isn't just about a loaf of bread. Maybe it's about a false gospel of consumption. There's more than one gospel in the world today, but there's only one true gospel. In Satan's native language, Jesus says, is lying, deception, sleight of hand, trickery. He's a deceiver. And so as we look at these verses here in Matthew's gospel, I, I want us to consider, I want us to consider uh, some questions. And then the first question is this. So what is this, what is this about bread anyway? Why bread? Is there a story behind this story here? And the answer is yes. We're going to see that there is a story behind the story of this temptation. It's a story that goes back in time to Israel's history. And I want us to consider Israel's story of consumption. And then I want us to consider how Jesus responded in his own story when he was tempted by Satan. And then, finally, I want us to consider our own story. Uh, How does Christ's victory over this temptation help us face and defeat the false gospel of consumption? All right? So that's where we're going. We're going to consider Israel's story, Jesus' story, and our story as we look at Matthew's gospel. Well... As I said, there is a story behind this story, and it has to do with Israel's history. We will not be able to understand the temptations in Matthew chapter 4 if we don't go back in time, because these temptations are but a reenactment of what happened in Israel's history. So let's go back in time. God had called Israel his Firstborn son, this is my son, Pharaoh. Release my people so that they may worship me in the wilderness. 400 years of Hebrew slavery. God had sent the deliverer Moses. And 10 plagues later, 10 plagues upon the Egyptian empire, each plague corresponding to an Egyptian idol. So it was more than just punishment for Egypt's disobedience against God. It was spiritual warfare as Yahweh was showing his people and the Egyptian empire that these idols are just idols. They're not real. There is only one God. And 10 plagues later, Pharaoh relented, let God's people go, but then changed his mind and went after them. And so there was the nation of Israel between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army behind. What's going to happen? And God, through his servant Moses, parted the waters of the Red Sea and the people of God traversed on dry ground, reaching the other side. The old life was gone and there before them was the new life headed toward a land of promise where God's people would settle. That was Israel's story. Now what happened after they crossed on the other side? They saw this vast wilderness. How in the world are they going to eat? And God fed them. What was it he fed them anyway? Manna. 
Manna. Manna. You know what manna means? What is it? Manna. What is it? Manna. What is it? Manna. Manna is Hebrew for what is it? (laughs) And there are some descriptions about manna in the Bible, and it was kind of settled in the morning like like frost. It was kind of like coriander seed, uh, the scripture says, and it it was uh, like flaky wafers made with honey and uh, kind of overtones of, of olive oil. And God said, this manna is going to sustain you in this vast, barren wilderness because I love you and I want you to trust me that I'm going to sustain you. And so God had a very specific instructions for how he wanted his people to go grocery shopping. Here's what he said. He said, on days one through five, I want you to gather only enough for the day. So on Sunday, I just want you to get enough for Sunday. Don't get, you can't get groceries for the week. You're going to have to get groceries for the day on days one through five. So don't get Monday's groceries on Sunday. Just get Sunday's groceries. Monday's groceries will be there on Monday. You just worry about Sunday. And so, you know, God's people, some of them did, and some of them said, I don't know about this. It's a pretty barren wilderness out here. Let's just have some backup plan here. Get a little bit more. So some of them did, and they got enough for Sunday and Monday. And what happened on Monday? They opened up, and this, this, this is this sweet olive oil-like honey, coriander seed, turned to maggots and reeked the high heaven. And Moses was, why don't you just listen to what God says? Consume His word. But what was going to happen on day six? On day six, God said, "Now on day six, I want you to get a, get enough for day six and day seven, because the stores closed on day seven. It's the Sabbath." I don't want you working. That's the deal. And so, some of them said, all right, let's get enough for day six and day seven. And they had enough. And others said, ah, Moses, he's an old man. What does he know? It's been here the past few days. It'll be here. The store will be open on day seven. And it wasn't, was it? And they went hungry. And it was an exercise of trust and dependence and consumption of God's word as he fed them manna in the wilderness those 40 years. But in Numbers chapter 11, which is on page 103 of your church Bibles, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, we read about a group of people that the Scripture calls the rabble. The rabble, they were in the community of Israel. The rabble, they're everywhere. Maybe not here. The rabble with them begin to crave other food. And their complaints grew viral. And then the Israelites started in. And verse 4 says they started wailing. Oh, if only we had meat to eat. I mean, we remember the fish that we had in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now we've just 
We've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. <laughs> Give us a break. We're sick and tired of it. Give us some real meat to eat. Well, isn't that interesting? Because when we bow before the idol of consumption, we get amnesia, don't we? We forget that. We forget that. You would have thought by reading these verses that God had rescued Israel from a resort. Oh, we had. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They were slaves for 400 years. But here, here bowing before the idol of consumption, they've forgotten how horrible their addiction was, how bad their enslavement was. And what they had to say was highly offensive to the Lord. Because in saying what they said, they, were, they weren't just rejecting the food, they were, giving, they were rejecting the one who gave the food. And Moses and the Lord spoke. And in verse 18, God told Moses, you tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. You want to eat meat? You're going to eat meat. You're going to eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if we only had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to eat it. And you're going to eat it, look at verse 19, not just for one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days. You're going to eat this for a whole month. You're going to eat it until it comes out of your nostrils, until you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him. Why do we ever leave Egypt? And the fact of the matter is, church family, they could have had meat. See? See, all you got to do is just glance over at Numbers chapter 9 where God gave Moses instructions to the Israelites concerning worship, including the Passover, when as a part of the worship service, they would actually eat meat like lamb. So if they'd been following the proper worship protocols, it really wouldn't be an issue. But you see, the problem was they wanted, and the Bible is specific in this term, other food. They wanted other food. They, they were rejecting God. And so God, the very next day, sent his people a quail storm. Numbers 11.31 says, A wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. And I mean, the community of Israel became like an, an island surrounded by an ocean of quail. The Bible says that outside the camp of Israel was quail three feet high as far as you could walk in any direction. That's a lot of quail. And then God's people, the, the Bible says they went out to gather the quail, and, and, and no one gathered any less than, uh, and the equivalent is 60 bushels of quail. Now, what are they going to do with all that quail anyway? Freeze it? What? And Numbers 11.33 says, but while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hata'ava. Kibroth Hata'ava. It's Hebrew for 
the graves of craving because there they buried the people who had craved other food, other food. And that's why Psalm 78, 18 says, they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. You know, since we're talking about temptation here in these weeks leading up to Easter, one of the things I learned from Numbers chapter 11 is that the very worst thing that can happen to me is for me to get what I want. You see, I, I, I tend to think of myself as an expert on the ways and means of Randy. I tend to think of myself, I'm, I have a PhD in Randy. Do you feel like you have a PhD on you? And what this, what this verse says to me in no uncertain terms is that from the worst, see, I think what I want is what I should have, and so that's what I want. But the Bible says the worst thing that can happen to me is for me to get what I want. Which tells me something else about temptation, and it's simply this. Part of temptation's lure is that the conclusion of the path of temptation is concealed. If those Israelites, how many of them would have craved for that other food had they known that the conclusion was going to look like verses 33 and 34? But that's part of the lure of temptation. The, 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 the lure of temptation, the bait of temptation. The fish never sees the hook. The fish just sees the meat. And that's what we need to understand here as we fast forward to Matthew chapter 4 with the temptation of Christ. You see, just as Israel was called God's son in Exodus chapter 4, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 is called by the Father, this is my beloved son, chapter 3 actually, in Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Just as Israel went through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus goes through the baptismal waters of the Jordan River. You see what Jesus is doing? He is reenacting Israel's history. Just Just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And what is all this about? Well, God is doing a new thing. God is about creating a new people. And Jesus is the captain of the new people. And he is all of Israel. He is reenacting, doing for Israel what Israel could never do for themselves. And so he is going to be entering this season of fasting, just as Israel did. He's going to be entering, entering the desert, just as Israel did. And he is going to be working toward a new heavens and a new earth, a promised land, just as Israel did. But where Israel failed, the sun will succeed. Well, but will he? And so he goes to this wilderness. And all of it's on him. All of it's on him. And Satan says, at the peak of Christ's hunger, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, and that's when uh, Satan hits us, right? When we're most vulnerable. 
At the peak, Jesus, uh, Satan says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And it's just a replay of Numbers chapter 11. It's just a replay. Satan says, well, you're the son. Oh, when, when, when Satan says, if you're the son of God, it, it, you could have easily have written that since you are the son of God. Satan knows who Jesus is. And Satan says, well, you're God's son. You're the chosen one. You're the king. You know, you don't look so good for being a king. You're looking kind of gaunt and thin. You should eat. Why, you're reenacting Israel's history? Well, the Father provided for this first Israel. What? Provide for yourself. Feed yourself. Supply yourself. Take care of yourself. It'll feel good. You'll look better. And besides, who's going to know? It's not like anybody went out there in the wilderness with him. It was just Jesus and the tempter. How can you say that your father loves you, letting you look the way you look? What an awful thing. Come on. Eat. Can you hear it, church? Can you hear the rabble? The satanic rabble of Numbers 11? Replaying? Can you hear the temptation to gripe and to complain about how you're not getting your fair share? How you're not getting treated the way you think you should be treated? You've not been recognized at work like you think you should be recognized. You've not been given credit for a project that you did and you know you should get that kind of credit. You've not been given the spouse that you think you deserve at this point in your life. You're not getting the attention that you feel that you should get. It's not happening at work. It's not happening at home. And it's not happening at church. After all I've done for this church, after all I've done for God's people, I'm not getting the attention that I think I deserve. The snake still speaks, doesn't he? Why should you go hungry? Eat this. Drink that. Wear this. Consume that. Watch this. You're famished. You need it. It'll make you feel better. No one will know. It's your laptop anyway. And you're one click away from Egypt. And you're one click away from catastrophe. This temptation is not just about a loaf of bread, church. This temptation is about asserting yourself before a holy God by letting him know in no uncertain terms that he's not getting it done the way you think he should get it done. And so, therefore, God, would you just please get out of the driver's seat? I'll take it from here. Thank you very much. That's what this is about. This temptation is about whether or not I'm going to buy in to a false gospel that is promising to fill the empty spaces in my heart when there's only one who can do that. Now, what's it, what are you going to do? We know what Israel did, don't we? We just read their story in Numbers chapter 11. 
What's Jesus going to do? How's he going to respond? What does this say about what's in his heart? Well, what did he do? Look at verse 4. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus quoted the original reason that manna was given in the first place. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. And why? To teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So do you hear what Jesus is saying here? What was the purpose of manna? The purpose of manna was to teach God's people that they don't live on manna, they live because God speaks the manna into being. So in other words, it wasn't the withholding of manna, but it was the giving of manna to teach God's people that they don't live by manna. You see, see the miracle of manna, I said, well, how does that work? I mean, why, why does God teach me to depend on him by giving him food, by giving me food? Well, how does that work? Here's how that works. When you are in the wilderness and you are desperate and you are starving and there's nothing else that you can do, the miracle of the manna shows that in your worst wilderness, God can, with one word, meet your needs. See, the the miracle of the manna trains us to consume God, to rely upon Him, and to rely upon His blessing that comes from His mouth. The miracle of the manna teaches you that it's not the food that keeps you alive. It's not. God keeps you alive. Listen, food does not keep you alive unless God wants you alive, and if God wants you alive, He can use food or not, right? And that's why Jesus says in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food. Satan, God the Father fed the first Israel manna. And if God wants me to eat in the wilderness, he'll give me manna. And I'm going to wait on him. And if he does not want me to eat, then I'm not going to eat. And I don't see any manna So I'm not going to eat. I'm going to depend upon him and his provision. And I'm not going to, I am not going to abort the fatherhood of God just for one moment of filling my craving. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait on him. And of course, later on in Matthew's gospel, it was time to eat, right? In John's gospel, did Jesus not turn the water into wine? In John's gospel, did Jesus not transform a a few loaves and a fish to a massive feast, you see? Why? Because it was time to eat. Jesus says, I'm going to depend on my Father, and His will is my food. And the training that He received in the wilderness at the outset of His ministry prepared Him for what would happen in the garden when Jesus was given a cup, the cup of suffering. God says, I want you to, it's time for you to drink this cup. And Jesus said, I'd rather not, but not my will, 
but thine be done. If you want me to drink this cup, I'll do this. And he did. And he endured. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? Because of the joy set before him. You see, to Jesus, the conclusion was not concealed. Jesus saw what was at the conclusion of his ministry. Jesus knew that when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, there at the end was a banquet feast by his heavenly Father with a cup running over, also accompanied by his bride, the church. And Jesus says, that's the feast I'm waiting for, and I can afford to fast until that feast. The fact of the matter is, Jesus did not resist Satan because he didn't like bread. Jesus resisted because he wanted more bread than Satan could offer. He wanted better bread than what Satan could offer. All Satan was offering was just stale crackers in the wilderness, and Jesus was waiting for the banquet feast with his heavenly Father and his church. Do you know why you're pursuing the idol of consumption today, and do you know why you yield to the idol of consumption? It's because you're too easily pleased. That's why. Jesus is offering better bread. And isn't that why we share in the Lord's Supper every Sunday? I mean, don't you understand? We share in the Lord's Supper every Sunday as a reminder so that we won't forget that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death at the very end, there's going to be a banquet feast in the new heavens and the new earth in new bodies with with our heavenly Father and with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a very vivid reminder that the best is yet to come. So we can wait. We can wait. So what does that have to do with our story today? Here we've heard Israel's story. We've heard Jesus' story. Now what's our story today? Well, because Jesus conquered and because we are are in him, Jesus promises life to those who consume him. John 6, 57 and 58 says, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus Christ boldly declares and confirms by his resurrection that he did not come to eat manna. He came to be manna. You consume him in your life and you will live forever. And, and what, now what is that though? Well, church it's faith it's relying on him it's letting jesus and not stuff fill the empty places in your heart and life it's relying upon him and leaning upon him and letting him be your true source of identity now what does that look like though i mean how what does that look like practically speaking well let me just tell you in very practical ways what that looks like First of all, some of you have come here today, and it feels, at least in your mind, that you are in a, a, a barren wilderness. You, you feel like that the Spirit of God has driven you into the wilderness. 
may I, may I just lovingly encourage you that if you are in the wilderness right now, the first best question for you to ask is not, how soon can you get me out of here? That's not the first best question. The first best question is this. Lord, what are you teaching me? What are you revealing about my heart? What is it you want me to learn in this wilderness? What is it? How do you want me to live to show in this wilderness that your will is my food? Could I just encourage you? Don't be so... Don't be in such a hurry to leave this desert of deprivation. It may be that God wants you there so that he can teach you to depend upon him. Some of you, some of you are not in the wilderness, though. For some of you, you're experiencing a season of joy and a season of feasting. Here's God's word for you today. God's word for you today is, why don't you put yourself in the wilderness through fasting? Through the spiritual discipline of fasting. Why don't you experience self-inflicted wilderness for the sole purpose of depending upon God? Fasting from food for a meal or two meals or for a day and you feel the empty hunger pangs and with every hunger pang your your prayer is lord it's not it's not bread i need it's you i need it's not bread it's you it's you lord it's you and only you fasting forces questions like what am i a slave to is my appetite god or is god god What's in my heart? Am I going to gripe like rabble when my blood sugar gets low? Will I abandon the path of obedience and turn stones into bread, or am I determined to live from every word that comes from the mouth of God? Fasting is a way of revealing my heart and confessing to God what's in my heart. I would like to just lovingly challenge you one meal this week or one day this week, you pick the time for you to fast and spend that time in prayer focusing upon the God of this universe. But let's go deeper than that. Fasting from food? What about the notion of fasting from words? You're in an argument with someone and you're feeling defensive, and your inner lawyer begins to rise to your defense, and the Holy Spirit says, it's time for you to fast. <laughs> it's time. Jesus resisted temptation by refusing to use his mouth. You should too. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, the more you talk, the more you're likely to sin. If you're wise, you'll keep your mouth shut. I don't know about you, but the less I talk, the less I exaggerate. The less I talk, the less I lie. The less I talk, 
the less I say things I regret. Maybe that's true in your case. Fasting from food, fasting from words. And how about fasting from stuff? What would that look like in my life to fast from stuff? Well, I want you to hear a brief faith story from one of our students who will tell you what that's about right now. Thomas? Hi, I'm uh, Thomas Peisker. I'm a high school student. I've been going to Windsor Road for about 12 years now. And um, like Randy said, I'd just like to share a little bit about what consuming stuff has looked like in my life. Now, since I was a kid, I always remember saving up my allowance to, you know, buy video games or things like that, you know, buy Legos when I was a little kid. And as I got older, it tended to be more music and clothes and things like that. And I started to notice um, kids around me in school and things like that, they didn't, they didn't always have as much as I did. You know, there were kids who were wearing the same sweatshirt to school every day of the week. And I thought, that's weird. I have like six sweatshirts. Why would he, you know, why would he only wear one? And there were kids who had to have lunch provided for them by the school. And I thought, that's weird. Why doesn't his mom make him lunch like my mom does for me? And this all became clearer and clearer to me that I had a problem with stuff just because I was trying to fill some kind of a void in my life. I was trying to have all of my material things satisfy me. And I had an, an epiphany while I was uh, doing a, what they call a United Way poverty experience. It's a, um, it's a simulation, essentially, where you have families who are organized into different groups and you have people who are organized in different roles throughout the community. And um, I was the banker, so I had you know, records of who owed me what and um, how much people had on deposit. And um, in the entire experience, only two people came to me. And it, it made me realize that there's people who are worried more about putting food on the table and getting their kids to school and not so much worried about, you know, how much money do I have to save to buy this thing that I want that's going to make me happy for a month, maybe a week, maybe a few days. And so when I got home after that experience, I talked to my parents and I asked, what, what can we do, what can I do to be a little bit more radical, to change the way I view stuff and to change the way I'm trying to fulfill myself. And so I ended up, you know, selling about half my wardrobe and I donated the stuff that they wouldn't take and we put the money into a fund so that um, my parents and I are saving to build a well in Africa. And I, um, I've done other things, like I've promised myself. I, I try to never buy anything that doesn't help someone else or doesn't further my ministry. I'm a musician and I play in the worship band sometimes. And it's shown me just how much, how much ridiculousness I was experiencing back when I was just consuming all this stuff, right? Trying to fill this God-shaped hole inside of my heart that could never be filled by anything but him. And so as, um, 
as this commitment goes on, I've, you know, I've helped friends who are struggling with the same thing. Uh, one friend of mine in specific comes to mind. I cleaned out about half of his closet too. Um, and I've been w- working, organizing service projects within my school and just trying to show people that it's easy to try and satisfy oneself with stuff you can buy, stuff that's right there, you know, immediately, when really the only thing that will ever, ever satisfy me is God and his love. So during this next song, as the band plays, there are slips of black paper on your chairs, and we invite you to, if there's something that you're consuming, if there's something that you're trying to replace God with, We invite you to give that to him. We ask you to invite him into your heart and take the place of whatever it is that you're trying to fill your God-shaped hole in your heart with. Thank you.